Hi. <clears throat> My name is Masha Gessen, and I'm here today as both one of the speakers and a trustee of PEN America. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about PEN first, and I have, I have a cheat sheet. Um, on behalf of over 7,000 writers, translators, editors, and other members of the literary community who belong to PEN America, it's our great pleasure to welcome you to the 14th annual PEN World Voices Festival of International Literature. Actually, we've been welcoming you for a few days, but it's still our pleasure. PEN America is an organization that stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect open expression at home and abroad. We champion the freedom to write, recognizing the power of the world to transform, of the ones worldwide that make up the PEN International Network. We work to ensure that people everywhere have the freedom to write, to convey information and ideas, to express their views, and to access the views, ideas, and literature of others. And for me personally, I, um, I grew up in Russia knowing about Penn. It was like this, Penn was my shining city on a hill. And, um, and when I moved back here from Russia four years ago, one of the first things I did was join Penn and then join it as a tra trustee and have been serving as a trustee now for four years. Um, and I have to say it's really some of the most meaningful work I've done. And also I've been like just incredibly fortunate to have conversations with other PEN members and participants in PEN events, both sort of small scale um, on the board, but also at festivals like the PEN World uh, Voices Festival and events that PEN holds throughout the year. Um, and I'm supposed to say that in the face of unprecedented threats to basic human rights, all of which is true, at home and abroad, your support is more important than ever in protecting freedom of expression and a free press, defending fact-based discourse, and resisting measures that would impair the flow of ideas, which is why you should become a member of PEN. And I would also like to thank the sponsors, supporters, and volunteers who make the PEN World Voices Festival possible. Thank you all for coming today, and thank you to our guests, of whom I'm one, uh, for agreeing to take part in what promises to be a wonderful event. So I can see my, my panelists. I'm Suzanne Noss. I'm the CEO of PEN America. and delighted to uh, be here and uh, kick off this conversation. I'll introduce our three panelists, uh, including Masha, even though you just met her, uh, if you didn't know her already, and then uh, uh, just uh, uh, set things up a little bit and get going. Um, so uh, to my left, of course, Masha Gessen, the author most recently of The Future's History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, uh, winner of the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2017. Her other books include The Brothers, Road to an American Tragedy, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot, and the international bestseller, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. She's a visiting professor now at Amherst College and recipient of Gu the Guggenheim Fellowship, Andrew Carnegie Fellowship, and the Neiman Fellowship, and as she mentioned, has been on our board since 2014. Next to her, Patrice Coulouris, an artist, organizer, and freedom fighter based in Los Angeles. She's a co-founder of Black Lives Matter and founder of Dignity and Power Now. She's also a performance artist, public speaker, and New York Times best-selling author. She's won many awards for her activism and movement building, including being named by the LA Times as a civil rights leader for the 21st century and the Sydney Peace Prize for her work on Black Lives Matter. She recently completed an international tour for her new book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. 
And then finally, to her left, Dale Ho, who is the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project and supervises all the ACLU's voting rights litigation and advocacy work across the country. He has active cases in over a dozen states. He's litigated cases under the Federal Voting Rights Act and the National Voter Registration Act, including Shelby County versus Holder, Frank versus Walter, and League of Women Voters of North Carolina versus North Carolina. So with that, and with that uh, terrific group, uh, I want to sort of set up our conversation a little bit. For Pen America, I would say, uh, you know, we woke up to this question and this, even this idea of resistance. It was really due to Masha. Um, we had a board retreat that was uh, kind of fortuitously, I guess, scheduled for the weekend after the 2016 election. So it was about three days after the election. And by that time, somehow, uh, Masha had already published her piece on how to survive an autocracy. And that became kind of the credo for our, our retreat and really for the work of the organization uh, over the succeeding now almost 18 months. And in that piece, uh, she talked about President Obama and Hillary Clinton's initial, their earliest, their first kind of comments in the wake of the Trump victory. And you know, messages like, you know, he, he, we have to give him a chance. And, and she said, uh, what we needed to do instead, or what I took away is what we, what we needed to do instead was move into a mode of resistance and that there shouldn't be a hesitation. There should, needed to be license to uh, refocus our attention and our energy. And I think in a sense, Masha, for some people, kind of gave permission to resist. And what that sort of built upon was, I think, the foundation that Black Lives Matter and other movements had already created and laid into place over the last few years. And there was a kind of flowing together to some degree that has occurred since then. And you know, perhaps Black Lives Matter in a sense showing how it was done and Masha giving a green light to a whole lot of new people to do it and to take part in this. And you know, there's so many images of resistance. I mean, I think in those early days for me, you know, I don't know, I, I sort of had in my head people smoking around a dinner table. I think it was Eastern European or maybe too much time with Masha uh, or Russian conception of resistance, a kind of, um, you know, closed in, uh, somewhat fearful, wary, you know, darkened sense of resistance that we we're now all going to be hunkering down. But then they're very different uh, images of resistance. You know, the Women's March, uh, the March for Our Lives, being out there, out on the streets. We did a big event called Writers Resist uh, the week and before the inauguration, where really for the first time, there were thousands of people gathered outside on the steps, or at least first time for Penn, uh, of the New York Public Library. And then we marched up Fifth Avenue to present a big petition on the First Amendment to Trump Tower. You know, then there's the sort of, uh, commodified resistance and sort of the, you know, the, the, the commercialized resistance of the Pepsi commercial and the Oscars uniforms and, you know, other ways of sort of uh, resistance feels, can feel faddish and ephemeral and opportunistic. And then there's a very kind of practical uh, nuts and bolts resistance that's taking place in courtrooms. Uh, uh, led by the ACLU and other organizations. There'll be a hearing uh, uh, this week on the Muslim ban. Um, we, and we've submitted an amicus brief in that case. So 
there are all these different threads of, the, of resistance and many more, and we'll try to sort of unpack it a little bit today. And I'm going to turn to Patrice uh, to kick us off with a few thoughts. Uh, well, thank you so much, PEN America, for having me, and thank you. It's very strange to be on the stage because I cannot see any of your faces. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, I, but I will say that um, what a time to be alive. And uh, so much of the work of the last five years of Black Lives Matter has been about doing a few things. One, um, living under an Obama administration where uh, largely white folks believe that we were post-racial. Um, I, I remember the headlines being, does this mean we've overcome racism in our country? Um, and rather quickly we all realized, black people already knew, but th I think the rest of the world realized, oh no, we haven't. And so we see um, the killing of Trayvon Martin by vigilante, that vigilante gets to go home. Uh, at the same time, Marissa Alexander and the same county being prosecuted by the same prosecutor uh, and almost getting 60 years. There was a big fight to free Marissa Alexander. Uh, and what we've seen over and over and over again is the continuous death of black people at the hands of the state um, with um, impunity. And um, Black Lives Matter, uh, I, in some ways, in this iteration, um, kicks off the resistance and um, challenges the status quo and challenges um, law enforcement, both on the streets and in jails, um, and creates a new environment in which we fight. And I think for me, uh, as, a, as a person who's been a trained organizer, uh, much of the fight in the last five years has really looked at staying in the streets. And I know that in, at, the, at the beginning of Black Lives Matter, I don't, I don't know if we feel it as much now, but at the beginning of Black Lives Matter, people definitely were like, are they gonna stay in the streets? Is this gonna continue? You know, what is Black Lives Matter really doing? Um, and we've seen five years later, we were actually trying to warn the rest of the country, if we don't fight now, imagine what we're gonna be up against. And now we're here. And so there's this way in which um, our resistance also has to center those most marginalized. Our resistance has to center uh, those who have been at the margins for uh, centuries. And how do we do that? And how do we approach it? And how do we fight back in a way that's effective, that's strong, and that brings everybody along with us? Um, lastly, I'll say Black Lives Matter, and I, 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 I'll say it to this audience, not because I don't think you believe this, but just as a reminder, that Black Lives Matter is obviously a movement for all of us. Um, and that when we fight for black lives and we actually center black folks in this fight and when we free black folks in this fight, everybody else gets a little bit more free. Thank you. Thank you. So um, from the smoke-filled room over here, uh, I mean, I, I have to say actually, that it, it's really, it was very interesting, Suzanne, to listen to you uh, a little over the top uh, in terms of the, um, crediting me with launching <laughs> the resistance or giving people permission to resist. Actually, I think by definition, resist is what you do without permission. But um, uh, but part of what motivated uh, the, uh, me to write that piece was actually the fear of, um, of that state of constant sort of mobilization and uh, the sense of living under siege that's so familiar to me from, from living in, in, in Moscow and kind of feeling like 
and and there's 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 sort of a, a lovely sense to that feeling, something that used to draw people who would travel to um, the former Eastern Bloc and meet dissidents there, because they all seem to have such an incredible understanding, and they were all so close. But really, what it felt like w uh, was that the world consisted of your six best friends with whom you shared um, uh, all, all of your opinions, and then the rest of the world was hostile. And and I have a profound fear of sort of sinking into that state. Um, so. From that point of view, I think things are not as bad as, as they could be. It is wonderful to see sort of, um, resistance that feels expansive rather than closed in like that. <coughs> but uh, my, my two biggest concerns have been, as, as a writer um, uh, and, and, and as a citi citizen, have been with culture and sort of what happens to us uh, and the way that I've phrase it to myself as a journalist is that I try to write not about what um, how terrible Trump is, but what how terrible things are that are happening inside us, right? And um, and you know we find ourselves a year and a half into this talking about things that used to be unthinkable mm -hmm. and unspeakable. And they have become almost routine. And I think that that does profound damage to the fabric of our society into our own psyche. Um, you know, when he tweets something like, uh, let's revoke NBC's license, and then suddenly we're talking about it, whether it's actually possible that it, the President of the United States has tweeted that a television network should lose its license. And that sort of thing, the talking about the unspeakable and talking about the extreme, which keeps us from talking the important about uh, the actual important stuff, is what's really scary. And um, another thing that has concerned me is the uh, sort of the continued creation of the other who are immigrants. And, and I think we're really losing that war. Uh, and I've been trying to write about um, ICE, I've been trying to write about deportations, I've been trying to, uh, to write about the Muslim ban, um, but it, it's, it feels like a losing battle. It's obviously a losing battle on the ground, where um, more people are getting deported, uh, more people are living in fear, but it also feels like a losing battle discursively. We don't have a conversation to oppose the war on immigrants. The rhetoric on the left uh, about immigrants has been you know, that these people are good for the economy, or look at these good people who are getting deported. Look at the uh, veteran of the war in Afghanistan who's being deported. Look at the brilliant student who should be protected by DACA who's, de who's being deported. Um, and it's very hard. I, uh, I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago about a woman who was facing deportation who is not a sympathetic character. Because the point of immigration law is not to keep people here who are good for the economy. The point, uh, part of it, uh, part, uh, the point of part of the law is to protect people from facing danger in other countries. It's a very nakedly humanistic law, and um, and people don't have to be good to have humanity and to be protected. We have to be good to be able to protect people who are facing danger. And that, I, th as I said, I think that the, the, the battle that we're losing is not just a battle for people's lives, but it's a discursive battle because the left does not have a conversation to oppose this war. Thank you.
Dale. Uh, hi, everyone, and thank you so much for coming out um, this afternoon and to Penn for giving me the opportunity to sit on the stage with um, uh, Masha and Patrice, which is just an incredible thrill for me. Um, the, our, our session's called Grading uh, the Resistance, so I just want to offer three observations grading um, what I might call the, the legal resistance, right, the legal arm of the resistance. Um, and I just want to make very clear that I don't view lawyers as the center of the resistance or the leaders of the resistance. At best, we're an appendage that helps try to fight on one particular front um, um, in the courts. Um, and I would say first that uh, if you asked me a year and a half ago how we'd be doing, I would not have predicted at least some of the legal fights to be going as well as they have been. I think we've been much more successful in curbing some of the worst abuses of the Trump administration so far. So a lot of caveats there that I want to um, talk about in a second. But if you kind of look at the overall picture um, and some of the uh, uh, more headline-grabbing items over the last 18 months, whether it's temporarily blocking the ban on transgender people serving in the military, uh, the fight to stop defunding of sanctuary cities, um, the fight to ensure abortion rights for unaccompanied minors in immigration detention, uh, the uh, Trump Voter Fraud Commission, which was designed to create this false narrative that our elections are fraudulent and thereby justify restrictions on the franchise, which has now been disbanded as a direct result of the, some of the litigation against it. And then, of course, stopping um, Muslim bans 1.0 and 2.0, right? Um, the uh, legal aspects of the resistance, I think, have been quite successful so far in curbing some of the worst abuses. But okay, a lot of caveats there. Um, and my second point, um, one of the caveats, some of the worst abuses, right? Because while some of these big ticket policies have been temporarily stopped, there's been a sort of drip, drip, drip of daily, what I would characterize as human rights atrocities, right, that collectively form, you know, an ocean that uh, litigation has not been successful in stopping, whether that's the stepping up of deportations and families getting ripped apart, uh, the reductions in grants of uh, refugee status and asylum status to people, the Department of Justice dropping civil rights enforcement along a whole range of fronts from voting rights to um, employment discrimination to investigations of police departments. Um, all of those sort of daily atrocities collectively add up to uh, 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 having a tremendous impact on people's daily lives and their human rights. Um, third point, and the second caveat um, that I would make about our success is that it's been success so far, right? Most of the cases um, that I referenced have been decided in, on a preliminary basis. The litigation is ongoing and civil litigation takes a very long time. I mean, I have some cases that have been going on since 2011, 2012. Um, our judicial process is not known for um, being particularly speedy. So uh, we don't know how these cases are ultimately going to end. Um, Trump is getting more appointees to federal courts every day. They're ramming through um, judicial appointments um, that were uh, for spots that were vacant um, thanks to obstruction during the tail end of the Obama years. 
So the courts are getting more conservative. It's going to be harder to win these kinds of fights in the future. And then, of course, a lot of these cases haven't reached the Supreme Court, where Trump, of course, appointed um, Neil Gorsuch, um, who uh, 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 is the fifth member of a pretty solid conservative um, majority. So how are we doing? Um, I think so far we've been pretty successful, an A for effort. But in terms of results, I think we get an incomplete. Thanks uh, for that. I'm going to turn. So, uh, well, A for effort, but then, I mean, what would, what would be your overall grade? Like, say, say imagine, imagine yourself, you know, the, the days after the election, you know, when I'm sure you were hunkering down at the ACLU and thinking, you know, my God, we're going to have a lot, to a lot of work to do and wondering how that all was going to go. You know, if you had to sum it up, uh, you know, with a, with a grade for the first year or the first 16 months, what would you give it? it it's kind of hard to give just a, a single grade because, you know, while we have been really successful in some of the cases that we've brought, and I use we broadly, not just talking about the ACLU, but a, a whole host of organizations that have been litigating cases, you know, in terms of where we've set our sights, we've accomplished a lot, but I think we have to remember that we've set our sights within the realm of what we think has been possible. I mean, even though we've won some cases, it's a really easy for the lawyers to look at each other and pat ourselves on the back because when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail and it's like, oh, we won this case and we won this case and we won this case. Hooray for us, right? But when you take a step back and look at the larger picture, I mean, the, the culture <laughs> is degrading, right? Society is getting, uh, uh, more coarse, it's getting uh, uh, more tolerant of uh, just daily violations of human rights and breakdown and, and, and the breaking down of norms that I think, as Masha put it, we would have thought were unthinkable um, a, a year ago. So in terms of what the law can accomplish, I think we're doing quite well, but I think we have to keep in mind that there's only so much that the law can accomplish, that our institutions, at the end of the day, you know, I think as Marsha put it in uh, her uh, rules for autocracy, they're, they're not going to save us, right, by themselves. Yeah, I think it sounds like a B minus or something. Sort of <laughs> um, what, about, what about you, Patrice, if you, had to, if you had to assign a grade? Well, I already did on the radio, so I have to say the same grade. Otherwise, I'd be contradicting myself. But I, it's I, okay. I, gave, I gave us an A, um, and I, I, I'm coming from an, an organizer's perspective and the work that it takes uh, um, to build a movement and folks who have never been to a march before, who didn't think anything was wrong with the country, have shown up in ways that have been incredibly impressive. Um, is it all it's going to take to dismantle what's been, um, what's been revealed? Uh, I don't think so, but I think it's, uh, from my perspective, it's really incredible to be, see so many people show up, whether it's in the streets or having the courageous conversations they need to have in their families or joining organizations. I mean, right now people understand uh, the people who are on the right side of history, there's more people on the right side of history, I believe. So I'm uh, just gonna press you for a minute. Is that the test? I mean, is the test people coming out on the streets when, you know, it's, it's a feel-good moment, you know, you, um, you know, have the sense of having done something and you bring your kids and you make the sign and, you know, it's, it's, there's something very, um, you know, kind of energizing and uh, invigorating about it. But then you, 
you know, you kind of go back to your life and maybe not much changes. And, you know, is that, is that the test? And if, if, it is, if it is the right test, you know, why? What do you think ultimately that portends for how successful we'll be in kind of holding back the things you know, Dale's talked about and others about what, you know, what we're afraid of. Well, I don't think in hypotheticals. I, I'm, think, I'm thinking in real life experiences I've had. And so five years ago, I remember when we started Black Lives Matter, the conversations I needed to have ostensibly with the left first about this is why this is important. And people kind of, I don't know, guys, like we got this black president, like sure we should be talking about this. To now, people are, People want to do something. Every conversation I have, um, every event I go to, by the end, folks are like, "How do I get involved? What do I do? I want to. I want to do something. I know I need to do something." So it's not sure. There, there, there are gonna, there are going to be people who show up in the streets and go back home and business as usual. But what I'm saying is, there's a lot more people who are like, "This isn't business as usual," and that's where I think that's the interesting sweet spot, especially for an organizer. All right, so three-judge panel here. Uh, Masha, where, where do you come out? Okay, so, so as a college professor, I look at whether students are turning in their work, and I look for an original contribution to the discussion. Um, and I think stu students are turning in their work. I mean, people are showing up. Um, and um, uh, so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's great. That's 100% sort of uh, participation, and they're good with deadlines. Uh, but in terms of the original contribution, I think it's really kind of sad. Um, and uh, you know, I would I would um, I would formulate two two problems. Uh, one is w uh, the resistance needs a vision, not just a Trump is bad um, kind of vision, but a what happens next, what we have to offer. And I think that's catastrophically lacking. It's lacking both at the street level and it's certainly lacking at the level of the Democratic Party. Uh, and the other, uh, another way to look at the original contribution would be um, to, to see how much the resistance is managing to sort of influence the dominant national conversation. And you know, we, we, we now live in really fast times, so I'm, I, I'm going to look only at the last like five days. For the last five days, we've been talking about the Comey book as a country. Um, and it's been really frightening and depressing to me the way that um, people are easily sort of positioning him as the good guy, the hero, um, in opposition to this terrible president. And yeah, I mean, if you have to choose, <laughs> <laughs> Um, then sure, it's uh, <laughs> it's better to have uh, y you know a um, a coarse but legalistic prosecutor, uh, uh, you know, cop guy uh, who doesn't like to lie, um, but who has a really bizarre concept of of, of um, ethics and has absolutely no sense of history or context, right? right? Um, uh, versus, you know, somebody who just doesn't have any of those things and who's only. Um, but I, I, wrote, I wrote a piece yesterday that, that, that we're basically being asked to choose between sort of the value of loyalty and the value of truth. And truth is better as a value, but naked truth, um, without history, without context, is just so woefully insufficient. And we're not getting any deeper, and we're not. Uh, so that the, the resistance is not making a contribution to that conversation. Right. So a B. 
like a generous B? I think I'll, sounds B minus, I'm thinking. Well, I mean, all the work is being turned in, right? Yeah, I guess grade inflation. Grade inflation is a problem with private colleges, yes. So let's turn to this question of kind of the larger vision. And is that a failure of leadership and imagination, or is it a function of the diversity and kind of big tent nature of this resistance movement and the fact that if, if we actually sat down to map that out, we would disagree vehemently, so we're better off kind of focusing on, on these fights for the moment. Dale? <laughs> I'm probably the wrong person to address, you know, <laughs> well, what the positive you know, vision is. is. I mean, it's a question for the ACLU. I mean, look, the ACLU, your mantra the day after the election, and I, I remember it, and I was, I was very struck and impressed by it, was, you know, we'll see you in court. Right. And, you know, and, and your, your presentation focused on those fights and sort of standing in the way. But the ACLU is also a movement of sorts, right? I mean, it's, um, it, 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 you know, there are positive values that animate your organization and and supporters, and you know how does that fit in, or nope. do you feel like it has been just principally defensive, and and if so, is that is that tactical? Is that because the positive vision is 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 hazy? I mean, there there are a few reasons for why I think our work is primarily defensive, uh, including some of the ones that you've identified. But fundamentally, litigation, imp civil impact litigation, is defensive, right? It's hard to build or reimagine new institutions through a lawsuit, yeah. right? What you can use a lawsuit to do is to sort of stand in front of the train, right? Try to stop bad things from happening. It's hard to create new things um, by suing someone. Well, it's interesting, we were having a discussion at another festival event last night was uh, called, Where Do We Go From Here? And it was about Martin Luther King's legacy. And you know, it's so, and sort of, a lot of the discussion did focus on the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act. and you know, a moment in time where, and may, I may be wrong in thinking this, where it seemed like, you know, at least the legislative agenda was was transformative. And is that, you know, is that even, you know, now may not be the moment. It's impossible to imagine now being the moment, but is that is that kind of thinking about, you know, were we to tip the scales, uh, you know, what would, beyond that agenda, how could we use the law to, create uh, affirmative change? No, I, I, we, we always try to balance playing defense with playing some offense and try to use the law not just as a defensive tool but as a, a, a tool for reform. It's hard to do it through litigation and I always think about, when I think about the law, I think about going to court because that's what I principally do but obviously there's also legislation um, and lawmaking through popular referenda and initiatives which is actually you know where I see a lot of energy going right now because trying to get stuff passed and you know, state legislatures is quite challenging and we can't even, we shouldn't even bother talking about Congress right now, right? But, um, I, you know, I'll just talk about voting rights since that's what I do, right? And that's my expertise. You know, for the last 10 years, pretty much since the 2008 election when for the first time in our nation's history, a quarter of the eligible electorate uh, were voters of color, we've had this onslaught of laws across the country making it harder to vote based on the premise that the 2008 election and that electorate just couldn't have been legitimate, right? right? That there's something inherently illegitimate about an electorate that looks like that. Must be fraud, we have to crack down, right? And so we've been filing lawsuits trying to stop these laws, but at the same time we're trying to push a, an affirmative agenda. And 
you know, candidly, in the, you know, for the first five-year period after 2008, we couldn't get a lot of traction on that. I don't know if that's because of the, you know, uh, 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 complacency on the left and people thinking we suddenly lived in a post-racial environment as if one election suddenly wipes away hundreds of years of uh, racism and slavery and uh, Jim Crow. But um, in the last five years, we're seeing some energy. And I'll just give you one example of that. Um, in Florida, right, it's one of four states where if you commit a single felony offense, you can't vote for the rest of your life, right? It doesn't matter what it is, right? And just to give you an example, stealing $300 worth of property um, can be a felony in Florida, right? So that can get you excommunicated permanently from civic society. Been working on this for decades to try to get this changed and haven't been able to sort of mobilize um, a larger uh, a popular movement behind this because to change it you have to change Florida's constitution which takes 60% of voters in the state to do it's a very high bar right well, for the first time in history um, activists on the ground have gotten it onto the ballot yeah. down there and it'll be on the ballot in November <laughs> I, I just want to just make clear how big a deal exactly. that this is right there there are 1.6 million people in Florida who can't vote because of a criminal conviction 1.2 million of them are no longer uh, incarcerated or on parole. They've finished with their sentences and they can't vote, right? It's over a quarter of the black men in the state, right? So, you know, we don't have a real democracy in Florida right now when that many people are excluded from participating. And it's not, Florida's not the only state with ballot measures um, in November that are, that are designed to increase um, access to uh, democracy and, and make the process more inclusive. And that's kind of a new development, and maybe that's a result of some of the energy from the resistance. Exciting. Um, what do you think, Patrice, about the question of affirmative vision? Do you agree with Masha that it's missing, or do you feel uh, it, it? I think it's not popularized. I don't, I, I don't agree that it's missing. I think it's not a popular part of the conversation. I think we have unfortunately lived in a, um, in a moment where the Democratic Party is uh, just more than flawed. It's just not working. It's not working for us. Um, and every opportunity they get to um, shift the paradigm of how they've been operating, they don't. Um, and I think that, because that is sort of like our dominant, that would, that would be the group that would popularize sort of a dominant vision, um, it's just c consistently lackluster. But is, it, is that because at, at the heart there's no agreement on it? You know, the vision that you might proffer? I think it's peop people, I, no, I, that's giving people too much credit. I think they're scared. I think they want to play it safe. Um, and this is the moment where none of us, should feel like we should be playing it safe. This would be the moment to break out of all of the, that, that um, yeah, just all of the ways in which the Democratic Party has been lackluster. And black folks have been yelling at the Democratic Party for years about this. I mean, much of the, the last couple years of, of Black Lives Matter was challenging, we first challenged the Democratic Party candidates. And people asked us, why would you do that? Well, have you not, have you not witnessed the track record? Have you not witnessed what they've created, a, a, a system around perpetuating mass incarceration, allowing for 
a Florida to happen, allowing for the state of California, who's supposed to, what, which is supposed to be a liberal state, to incarcerate more than it educates. And so we are in this moment where I feel like we should, you know, those of us who've voted Democrat historically should be challenging our party. We should be challenging it over and over again. And I think there's an interesting conversation about how we need to break out of being a part of a duopoly. Masha, do you think it's, it's a question of somehow igniting a, a different sensibility and putting more pressure on the Democratic Party? Is there, you know, I just wonder, is there something more fundamental at work? I mean, in this conversation last night about where do we go from here, you know, the argument that Nicole Hannah-Jones, the journalist, made is that, you know, fundamentally, white people have to give up a series of things in order to really to realize a more equal vision, and she's pessimistic. She doesn't think they're willing to give those things up. Is that is that at the heart of what's holding us back, or uh, you know, is it other factors? I think there are lots of things at the heart of what's holding us back. Uh, one of them is a sort of a very limited technocratic uh, view of politics. Uh, we uh, and and that's again, you know, coming back. I've been obsessed with this Comey book for the last week, so. Uh, you know, go going back to, I mean, it's so hollow. And the fact that we are somehow satisfied with a conversation that, that has absolutely nothing at its core, right? The, where um, those guys running around talking about leadership qualities, like as though leadership qualities were a matter of style, right? Of whether you tell people to wear shirt sleeves to a meeting or not. Uh, or whether you lose your temper or not, and you know, uh, doubtless it's important to not lose your temper as a leader, but maybe like have something inside, <laughs> right? Um, it, but but I think it's actually uh, you know it's funny in a way, but it's uh, but it really goes to uh, uh, something that's been dominant in American politics for several decades, which is this idea you that you just have to kind of manage things well, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's very dominant in the D Democratic Party as well. You have to count the data correctly. You have to manage the candidates well. You have to you have to have you know the right number of of of, um, of widgets uh, in column A and column B mixed metaphor. Uh, but um, you know the uh, things that are countable, right? Rather than things that are that fundamentally change the way we think about things. And we have to fundamentally change the way we think about uh, we think about a lot of things, including uh, the two party system. But um, but also, you know, what, what politics is, how we live together, uh, you know, what cities are, how we build, uh, how we educate, uh, how we vote on a much more basic level than, you know, uh, uh, who is allowed to take part in this particular system, right? And we don't, we're just not having that conversation at all. And in fact, instead of moving toward a more basic and deeper and richer conversation, which is uh, what ideally, but it never happens, what ideally a crisis would, uh, like this would, 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 um, would cause us to do, we're rapidly, we have rapidly moved into a much shallower, emptier conversation. All right, so this is maybe go, plays back to my, my fantasies of those, um, those smoke-filled sort of dining rooms yeah. in, in that and uh, other periods of resistance. I mean, d talk about that. What, you know, what period would you cite or what movement would you cite that you felt kind of embodied this deeper, richer, more transformative, more searching, more intellectual, more culturally engaged, you know, kind of process, and, and why, 
you know, is, can you get from here to there? I mean, we're commercialized, digitized, 24-hour news cycle, you know, cable-infused society. <laughs> is, is, is there a path, you know, is there a there, and what does it look like, and how do we get there? Um, yeah, I think there is a there. Uh, I unfortunately don't think that it's actually a mode of resistance, right? Because resistance is reactive. Uh, it's inherent in, 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 in the way we, we name it and the way we think about it. Um, but, but I think that I'm, 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 I'm working on a, on a project on this uh, and I'm, I'm starting to report on things, but you know, I'm, I'm really interested in people who are trying to do fundamentally new stuff around the country. A lot of the stuff is, is hyper-local politics, um, you know, but it's, it's the mayor of Stockton, California, who's introducing a universal basic income experiment. It's, uh, it, 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 it's things that are happening locally in Detroit, which is really a post-democratic kind of space, right? It's like the city hall is for sale, literally, exactly. right? Um, the building is for sale. Um, but, um, and so there are people on scorched earth who are doing the work of trying to figure out how we live together. As, uh, as corporations are encroaching, as, as they're being displaced for the umpteenth time in, in that city of Detroit. Um, but that's, you know, I, f I, I feel like my job as a writer is to try to amplify those projects. They're not going to originate on the national level. They're going to originate on the local level. And one of the things that I'm really concerned with is that we're seeing this stuff sort of sprout up um, and have been seeing it sprout up, I think, especially in the last year or so. And now with the midterms, I'm afraid that the Democratic Party machine is actually going to start crushing them, not picking up on the stuff that's, that's bubbling up, but, but, but crushing it. Uh, yeah, and I really appreciate you bringing up those um, towns because I think it, it is the local work that is actually visioning for the rest of us. Um, and Detroit, um, Adrian Marie Brown wrote a book, Emergent Strategy, that really looks at a new way of visioning our, our, ourselves into a new, a new country um, that might not even be a country. Um, and I think, I think a lot about the, uh, the black power movement and the ways in which it shaped itself. I mean, um, part of the sort of, you know, historical narrative is it was a bunch of black folks with guns, but the Panthers were talking about survival until revolution, and they created whole infrastructure for black communities where it didn't exist. They were working on you know, sickle cell clinics. They created full-on breakfast programs that we now benefit from. Um, they created a new infrastructure for us to imagine a different world, and they're having some of the most lively debates about the this, this country, nation state, whether it should be, should we should have a black nation. And so we are, we are not having those kinds of conversations in a popular way. I think it is more in this sort of like sitting in our living room, um, smoking the cigarette kind of way. Um, and I, but I guess I don't feel discouraged by that um, because I'm, I, I think we're just, it takes a lot of time to build and to vision, and I, I think it's important that we're critical, I think it's important that we're honest, but I, I think it's not a place for me where I say, well, th therefore I'm not hopeful. Um, it just takes, it takes a lot of time and work to get us to those places of visions. It's interesting, because Pan America, we've also you know, kind of done the same thing, because we have members across the country, as Masha mentioned, and 
in the last 16 months, we've been able to uh, raise some money and go out to them and say, if you want to do programs on free expression and the future of truth and press freedom in your local communities, we'll support you. And it's really taken off in about 20 different cities, including Detroit, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, all over the country. It's been amazing. One of the premises, you know, when we started it uh, was, well, we really want people to reach across ideological bounds. Like this can't be just, you know, the professors at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, you know, getting together uh, to, to um, you know, agree on how they feel about the Trump administration. And, you know, some of that has happened, but I'm curious now, and it was a big question, I'd say, in the early days uh, after the election, you know, is this about reaching across, you know, who are these people <laughs> who possibly could have done this to us? You know, and have we ignored them, ignored their plight? Uh, you know, do we need to get to know them to engage them? Or, you know, on the flip side, is it, uh, you know, it's just a question of kind of mobilizing our own base, growing our own base, and, <coughs> you know, effectively drowning them out and, and just winning over them? And how do you see that now? I have a few thoughts about this, but you know, in the context of a, a kind of technocratic context in which I work, um, you know, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Shoe fits, right? Um, I'm not an organizer. I'm not. Um, so, I mean, you know, we, we we have this internal debate sometimes when we're you know, litigating cases, and we're also working simultaneously on a communications and public education strategy on the issues that we're litigating. And it's, are we trying to talk about issues in a way that, you know, according to the polling data, right, gets us to, you know, somewhere close to 50% support? Are we trying to talk about issues in a way that engages and mobilizes um, people who care about these issues, but maybe aren't fired up about them, and in particularly something like voting rights, generally speaking on a lot of issues that I work on, not all, but a lot of the issues that I work on, a majority of the public agrees with the ACLU position, um, but no one makes that sort of like the reason they get out of bed to go vote on election day, right? No one's sort of like, I'm going to vote for this politician because of their position on voting rights, right? Um, contrast that with, say, how the NRA works, right? I mean, almost everything that they're pushing every restriction that they're fighting against, they have a very small minority of the public um, on their side, right? Things like universal background checks pull at like 80 to 90%, right? But the NRA beats them almost every time those laws come up in legislatures, not because they're reaching to the middle, right, or reaching across the aisle, but because they are really mobilizing their core constituency um, um, whose uh, uh, who, 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 you know, their, who, their support is not broad, but it's very deep, mm -hmm. right? Um, the people who care about that issue really, really care about that issue. And, you know, th there's no sort of one-size-fits-all solution to the civil rights and civil liberties um, uh, uh, fights that we're seeing, but more and more I'm increasingly convinced that our role is not to sort of find that broad message that's going to appeal you know, uh, uh, to whatever the supposed swing, you know, little slice demographic is uh, in a particular moment, whether it's the soccer moms or the hockey moms or the 
It's always like some kind of white suburban mom like, like going to some kind of sports practice, right? Um, I, I'm increasingly convinced that that's not what we need to do primarily, not, not, not that we should abandon that effort, that, but what we need to do is fire up the people who care about these issues but maybe haven't until now, until this moment of resistance cared about them enough to be active. It's like the fencing moms, like the, the tried and true fencing moms. <laughs> <laughs> Go to those events. Um, what do you think, Patrice? I absolutely agree with that. I think there's this um, weird like obsession with asking us to reach across um, the aisle um, when most of those people we would be reaching across the aisle would prefer to kill us <laughs> or harm us. And so <laughs> I, and that's not hyperbole. We've seen it over and over again. So I, th I think this is exactly right. Our organizing strategy must be deepening who we are loyal to and who's loyal to us and building a base. That's, that's the first thing you learn as an organizer, build your base. And when you go and build your base, find the people who are looking for you. Um, and there's a lot of people out there looking for some, looking for us. Um, and sometimes we spend too much time together, right? Like, great, you've been here for 10 years, but did you bring someone else that would be interested in this? And so that's, the, that's what the organizing looks like. It looks like going out. For some of us, it looks like door knocking. It looks like getting on a, getting on a bus and talking to people. And I promise you, out of those 100 people, you'll find at least three, and they will want to join. And then those three will find people. So there's a science to it, um, and this weird obsession with reaching across the aisle it just feels counterintuitive. I'm going to, in a minute, open it up to the audience. Uh, so please think about your 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 questions, um, and we'll turn to you momentarily. What you know, as a tactical batter, uh, I see the logic, and I think the 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 uh, invoking the NRA is interesting. But do you worry at all that, especially sort of in the digital age, the idea of building, um, you know, these deep impassioned constituencies, you know, can uh, sometimes backfire. And I'm thinking about an event I took part in a few weeks ago at the Guggenheim where they had a China exhibition and there were some uh, installations that involved, you know, there was a video of animals, pit bulls, it had been filmed 15 years ago. They were gonna show it as part of this exhibit. And over the space of about two or three days, uh, nearly a million people signed a petition in uh, vehement protest to this exhibit, and you know the museum pulled it down. And it, it was, I think, it did strike a blow to artistic freedom. And there have been a couple of other incidents around the world in the wake of that that have kind of ended similarly. And so it's concerning to an organization like Penn that stands for creative freedom. And one of the premises of this event was sort of, you know, there's a kind of almost, you know, the, a fervor that can mount, and there was no room for dialogue or discussion or explanation or for, the artist, for the artist to come out and, and, and talk about you know, why he was uh, portraying this in the way that he did. Does that, does that worry you at all with this approach? Well, is, I would love a little bit more context. Was it like animal rights people? Like I think it was principally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that's a very activated constituency. Yeah, I mean, so there's that, which I think is important. And I've also seen it in, in um, some instances where I'm like, ooh, maybe that's not the fight we should be doing right now. But lots of people are interested in it. But I think there's the other side of that, which is what just happened at Starbucks, um, which is this, you know, 
white woman is sitting in a Starbucks and she films that at this point it's been viewed over five million times, right? We all know what happened. Um, and it creates enough of, of, of folks to say this is unacceptable. And whether or not we agree with how Starbucks is responding to it, there is this really interesting response that's happening and that's forcing a corporation who's been, you know, for a lot of us, when a Starbucks comes to the neighborhood, you're like, oh, there goes the neighborhood. Um, it's forced to have a different type of conversation. So I think there's, and this is with, I, I'm not trying to minimize that example you gave, but I think in, in these situations where we're at right now in the digital age, this is like, there's, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. And um, I'd rather have what we have now than what we had a decade ago. Um, when, you know, I think a lot about Hurricane Katrina and all we had was CNN saying, you know, headlines, is this racist? You know, we didn't have the social media, we didn't have sort of people to activate the rest of the country and the world to be like, yes, we all know this is racist and this is why. Um, but, I, but I think it's interesting that we continue to engage in the conversation around how we deal with it. And I've seen it happen, you know, that's one instance, but I've also seen it happen to really amazing activists who end up getting torn down by mob mentality that happens on social media. Um, that happened to Chim Chimamanda, right? Yes. Sh and, and, and while what she said was problematic, all of a sudden Chimamanda, everything that she'd done, all the work that she'd done was canceled, you know? It's like hashtag canceled. And I'm like, come on guys. Like, we gotta be more nuanced. Yeah, we, I mean, just uh, uh, a brief interjection on that. We actually just yesterday released a new Pen America toolkit for how to deal with online harassment because we really do view it as a free expression issue. There are people who are being run off social media, which can be a prime channel, you know, for writers and journalists for them to get their word out. And so it's it's a uh, whole collection of how to engage with social media companies, law enforcement, et cetera, uh, so that you can uh, avoid being silenced. I want to open it up to the audience, and I think you uh, are there mics. Uh, I'm not sure. If there are mics, so I'm going to start. I see one and one there. But also, could Catherine. could we ask for the house lights? Yeah, yeah it's hard to see. <laughs> Catherine, are are there mics? There's. Okay, that will help us hear the question, uh, which uh, is better for all. So, please go ahead. Your question also. Yeah, the fundamental tales is, is he makes a point very profoundly that in history, real change has come when people step outside of those norms, the civil rights movement, the direct action, the movement from below. And today when Trump is ripping up the norms, that's even more required. And I would like to hear you speak about how you see the passivity that's really a part of the way American culture that somebody else has solved this for us, rather Thank than you. us raising active resistance. Thank you. 
So are we too reliant on the established channels and the legal channels? Maybe I live in a whole other world, but that's not my experience at all. <laughs> I think I think this is, you know, there are many Americas and and the uh, there, I don't believe there's massive passivity, but I think maybe where folks are living, that might be the case. Um, uh, yeah, I just think that that's, that that's not true right now. Um, and I think there's a, a question about what resistance looks like or what, what we how we're putting our bodies on the line. I'm with some of the most courageous organizers that are doing that every single day of their life. Um, and it's so I, I, I think I don't really understand the question. Are you saying that there is passivity and what is it going to take for there not to be? Yeah. Well, I, I, I do want to move on because we have other other questioners. Thank you. Uh, in the back there, just I'm going to ask you to speak up as much as you can if you're not going to go to the mic. I can't hear you. I think for other questioners, I'm going to ask you to uh, please go to the mic because it is hard to hear. And uh, we'll try to move through as many as we can. Thank you for, for your question. Um, I, ca I can't think anything of the Christopher Steele dossier. You see, uh, facts are not things that you can actually debate. There's I, uh, it's either a fact or it's not a fact. But you know, opinions are things that we can discuss. Uh, facts are not. I have not personally fact-checked the, the Steele dossier. From what I understand, some of it checks out and some of it does not. Uh, but I don't have an opinion on it. Please. Um, you spoke about elections and there was this lacking uh, vision that you wanted to do. Um, I, I'm in a resistance group and we have this group Better Relief. And one of the problems of having a unified vision is that it, it's so much, um, it's so many issues, so many issues. If you're Silence equals death is a strong, profound message. But when the messages vary, when the, when the problems are vary, when they're economic, when they're social justice problems, when they're racial justice problems, how do you cohere? Um, well, I was a member of ACT UP, and one of the distinguishing characteristics of ACT UP was actually how much different stuff was going on. And there were economic issues, and there were racial justice issues, and there were access to healthcare issues, and there were research issues, uh, and the literacy issues. And all of that was coming together in this one uh, very unruly uh, organization. and. Um, actually, I, you know, uh, I mean, the answer to how you could hear is, in a way, you don't. Uh, you use this, uh, I mean, what ACT UP taught me and uh, all the organizing that I've done since, I'm not really an organizer, I'm a journalist, but there have been times in my life when I've spent most of my time organizing, most recently in Russia in 2011, 2012, and what I did was, worked, uh, was based entirely on ACT UP. <laughs> um, 
And they d what, what ACT UP taught me is that you know, the, it, uh, if you have this pool of people who are willing to participate in resistance, then you address it as a pool. You don't try to organize everybody to, uh, f f for some one thing. You address people and you see if you can get support for this one thing that you think is worth working on right now. That's the way ACT UP functioned, and I think it functioned extremely well. Uh, that's the way we organized in, 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 in Moscow in 2011, 2012, and that also worked really well. And if people couldn't get even a small group around, uh, around them to organize something, then it didn't fly. And if they could, it, it, it did fly. But I, you know, I, th so th I th I'm afraid that's the wrong question, you know, not how, how, do, you, how do you bring everybody uh, together around a single message. Um, that, you know, that's not what you ask. Please. Yeah, we have, no, we have about 90 events uh, across the city this week, so if you look in the brochure, you'll find plenty, plenty of straight white men. Well, that's okay, but I was thinking, are there any in the resistance? I mean, you know, are we, I, I just wonder, and I'm not trying to racialize it, but you're, you're talking about inclusion, and you're, you're icing out people on Trump voters. You have got to be kidding. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for your question. Please. Hi, I just have a, a suggestion. My name is Susan. Um, I, I think about the ways that, the reasons why I think public is so often passive. Um, people fall into passivity because they feel like helplessness. And one of the reasons is that things cost so much to get elected. It costs so much to get a message out. Everything is so expensive. It's all about money. Corporations have taken over the government, um, and, and it, they, they compromise uh, politicians. And I guess what I wanted to suggest, and I'm not a business person and not an economics person, so I'm not good with this idea, but could there be a gender with business forces? Because I think solutions do lie in a, a, a creative way of looking at specifics. As an example, Lori McDonald Dobbs, who is Steve Jobs' widow, had the idea it was getting the message out that if you, you support immigration to this country, you're going to increase not only opportunity, but also get everybody's well-being is going to improve because you're going to have innovation that are going to come from Thanks. people from all countries and backgrounds. That's just one idea. That um, I, think, I, think the, I think the thrust of the question about whether there's more scope for cooperation with corporate is, uh, is, is clear. Are there uh, comments? Patrice, you touched on Starbucks. Oh, I don't actually want to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, maybe this we could take a, really well. Yeah, maybe we could take a couple questions and encourage folks to ask questions. I know people have a lot of ideas, and I, I love ideas. Maybe we could do that after the question part, because for people who actually have questions, that we're going to miss out on that. Is it 
I, I, mean, I do. I just want to say, does anyone, anyone want to comment on that? Okay. Uh, please make it a question, if you would. <laughs> Very good. Some money that is supporting it, and it's paying the politicians to uh, vote in terms of that. And there has been an absence of a gap in this. I agree so much with what is being said, but why does that always the elephant in the room? Uh, Thanks. Thank you. I like that question. Okay. I think the <laughs> last, in fairness to the last question, I think she was maybe trying to get at something not yeah. too different. Well, I really uh, appreciate so, that question. So hopefully we'll touch, we'll, both, we'll yeah. be, maybe even can satisfy both of you, but go ahead, Patrice. Well, I just appreciate that question, um, and I think um, you're absolutely right. And what we've seen, uh, you know, uh, this conversation about racial capitalism must be a how I think about the work that I do. But I, I think, you know, when we think specifically because the work I mostly do is around law enforcement. You know, so many people are like, I remember a reporter asking me, well, when is, uh, when are you, when are you all gonna get your Me Too moment? You know, how come Me Too was able to, uh, you know, m get all these powerful men to um, uh, resign or get fired? And I said, well, we have had a Me Too moment. It's called Black Lives Matter. <laughs> and um, law enforcement is, uh, is an apparatus of the state. And it uh, has uh, some of the largest funding pools. It's the, one of the biggest lobbies um, in our country. And um, we just saw with the killing of Stefan Clark, um, the day after Stefan Clark was killed, the police union gave loads of money to the district attorney. The district attorney who's um, supposed to be prosecuting uh, or could prosecute uh, killer cops. And so this conversation about money is incredibly important. Um, and, and I think the way we, we should be talking about it um, is not just money, but how racial capitalism impacts our ability or inability to move power. It's also a factor in the resistance. I mean, I remember we gave uh, an award to the Women's March, and then we, they were playing their conference in Detroit, and we were sort of in discussion about various free expression-related topics that could be raised there. And then as a follow-up, we got a big PowerPoint about the various sponsorship packages that we could, you know, take on in order to bring that conversation there. And, you know, I understand it because it takes money to put these things on. And nowadays you have to, you know, you have to have a social strategy and you have to have video and it has to be sort of high quality. And there's a, you know, there is a, there's a cost to the resistance. And I do wonder about how that affects what issues we can take on, what strategies we can mount, who's included and excluded. And I wonder if that's something you want to comment on. Well, there's always been a cost of the resistance because we've lived in this country for a long time. I mean, I got the privilege of going to the Schoenberg Museum and looking at SNCC's books and how they paid organizers. <laughs> I mean, this it, you got to pay people. You got to pay for time. It just It's a different context. So I don't think it like we're special, um, but I do think um, we have to be creative, innovative, and um, we have to be careful about what money we do take. Um, and uh, I would, you know, I, you know, this conversation about Starbucks is interesting because what I, and well, let me actually talk about the Sacramento Kings because they did, they did an interesting thing and I didn't think it was a PR stunt and we've been working with them locally in Black Lives Matter Sacramento, which is 
they um, they didn't um, squash the resistance that was happening in Sacramento against um, uh, the, the city. What they did instead is say, actually, we make all this money off of the city. We want to reinvest dollars back into the city. Um, and so they're creating an entire uh, monetary platform to support the resistance happening in Sacramento. And um, um, people like Stevante Clark, who is Stefan's little brother, people um, in that city that have been marginalized. And I think that's an interesting approach. I don't know if it's the fix-it ticket, but it's an interesting approach. Next question, please. Sorry, I'm short. Thank you. Masha, you want to take that one? Sure. Uh, well, I think the answer is we don't know and we'll never know, right? Because if we're at all successful in resisting, then we'll never know what we prevented. <laughs> uh, but I think, um, I think we, need, we need to fear the worst. Uh, I also think it's useful, sort of in terms of analysis, it's useful to think of this uh, administration as both unprecedented and a very clear continuation of, of, of a lot of history and you know, history that began with 9-11 and history that goes back a lot longer than that. I mean, there are many histories that converge, including a history that began uh, 15 months ago, yeah. right? Uh, and um, uh, I think that uh, the goal, if I had to formulate one, I would say that we have to focus on the fact that there will be a post-Trump America, yeah. uh, whether for natural causes or for some other reason. <laughs> and, um, and what is that America going to be like? My goal is to imagine it and to have a vision uh, that is shared among the many millions of people who want to live in that America, right? and then to take steps toward building it. Yeah. Please. Dale? <laughs> sure. Um, so I don't practice in the area of reproductive freedom myself, but you know, obviously a lot of my colleagues do um, at the ACLU. And you know, there is this, you know, there's this thought experiment that sometimes people try to imagine. What would the what would the country look like without Roe versus Wade? Right? And it would be one where abortion regulations would be left to the states, and you would have relatively liberal laws in some places, mostly along the coasts. It would 
be basically as if nothing had changed for those folks. But in other parts of the country, abortion would become um, um, almost inaccessible. That's the thought experiment, right? The reality is that we almost live in a situation like that today. Exactly. Many right? Many right. lived through that. Right. right, but I mean, even today, right, there are states with a single clinic, yeah. right, under fire, yeah. right, fighting for their lives, yeah. right? So we're almost already in that post-Roe, I mean, non-Roe world, Right, and with this administration and the judges who are being appointed to the appellate courts uh, by this administration, it's it's a, it's a very very perilous time right now. I mean, I, I don't have answers on that since I don't practice in that area, but just to acknowledge that we're a lot closer to that place than one might imagine already, right? And if there is another vacancy on the Supreme Court, it's uh, it's uh, it's 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 uh, very scary to think about. Thank you. Please. Uh, how do you deepen your base without uh, excavating the school information? I mean, fear seems to be going off today. You know, um, in the sense that I feel like uh, life kind of grew to deepen their base in the dark about the privileges. So how do we deepen our own base? without resorting to, um, I don't know if it's scare tactics or uh, rumor mongering. Or not maybe contributing to heightened polarization, even worse polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, you know, I think there's, there's a shade of a, of, a, of a false equivalency inherent in the way you pose the question. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a commonly shared misperception that, uh, uh, that there are sort of two equivalent bubbles in this country. And it's not true, right? There is a larger part of the American population that actually is routinely exposed to a variety of opinions. We actually see that here. Uh, and, and now I feel bad about uh, telling the gentleman that, that his question was uh, uh, funny, so I'm actually going to try to, to get at an answer to that question through answering your question. Uh, but, but that's an example, right? There are many different people with a, v- a variety of different opinions just in this room, right? We definitely do not share a worldview. Uh, uh, sort of your average American left of center, uh, where that center is now, uh, information consumer is routinely exposed to opinions that she doesn't share. That is not true in the actual bubble that exists uh, in the the smaller part that's right of center. And we can see that in the way that information flows, we can see that in the way that language changes, right? I mean, there, there are some really good empirical studies that show that this is in fact true, that, that people are exposed to different opinions. And so I think that a much worthier goal and a much more interesting uh, goal in terms of organizing, instead of reaching across the aisle, you know, continue for each one of us, continue to expose yourself to people and to work with people who don't share every single one of your opinions. That's how you avoid the incredibly tempting smoke-filled room where everybody see, uh, thinks exactly the same thing that you do. Uh, and you know, among other things, uh, and, and I'm going to answer that uh, the, the, the question. You know, uh, I, the first of all, I think that f- I don't know for a fact, but I assume that some of us are straight, some of us are male, and some of us are white. 
but, uh, but the, the idea that straight white men is actually a constituency that needs representation uh, is historically an error. Right? Uh, and, and that's why there isn't a person like that for the sake of representation on this panel. It's not impossible that a, a straight white man could be on this panel, I assume, but, uh, but it's, not, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's not part of the, um, it's not a necessity because that, that constituency sure. is uh, amply represented. But this is a kind of conversation that we can have, right, while disagreeing, which is, which is different from, uh, which, which, which serves to deepen the base um, and share uh, d differing opinions without this unrealistic and I think dangerous goal of reaching across the magical aisle. Thanks, please. <laughs> uh, this kind of goes to the broad panel. You mentioned briefly and touched on it earlier um, that social media has kind of taken a pretty big dip lately. Um, and I guess there are benefits to it um, and also some downsides. You know, the White House uses it as a form of resistance, obviously, but now even on Facebook, we talk about uh, segmenting populations and even family to family. I'm going to unframe this just Thank you. And uh, just to say, I think we'll take the last two questions and then we're going to have to wrap up because we're, we're close to time. But Should uh, we just do the other two questions mm -hmm. and then answer the panel? You want to? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So let's hear the other two questions and then we'll ask our panelists to comment on uh, any that they would like to okay, weigh in on. So voting rates. I think I think th I think the thrust of the question is clear. So we'll take the last question and then uh, I'll ask our panelists to respond.
So the three questions were around kind of social media for good or for ill and the resistance, uh, the question of uh, voter turnout, uh, and then finally uh, taking uh, uh, the focus of the resistance to the state level. So maybe, Dale? Uh, sure, I can address parts of all three of those points, but let me just start with the voting points since that's more uh, the area that I work in. You know, we have one of the lowest turnout rates amongst Western democracies. Um, that's not uh, 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 something that people don't uh, know about. It's, it's pretty sad when you look at our turnout rates, right? When you, we get a really high turnout election, if you compared it to an election, say, in France or England, it would be, it would be pretty pitiful, right, um, compared to what they um, normally get. There are a lot of different reasons for that. One of the reasons is that we actually vote, a, vote maybe too frequently, right? We break up local elections, off-year elections, primary elections, presidential elections, and if maybe we concentrated our voting at one time, maybe more people would come out. There are other reasons. We put the burden of registering on citizens, whereas in most Western democracies, the burden is on uh, the government to make sure that voters are registered, and lack of registration is one of the main reasons people cite for not um, participating. And then we also have this horrible practice of felony disenfranchisement that I referenced earlier, and you know, not to beat a dead horse on it, but look, there's six million Americans who can't vote because of a criminal conviction, right? We are an outlier amongst Western democracies in this regard. If you put those six million people together, they would be our 20th largest state, right? More people than in the state of Wisconsin, right? They'd have 10 votes in the Electoral College, right? The irony of these laws is they've gotten more liberal over the years, Right? Only four states disenfranchise you for life for, a single, for any single felony offense. 50 years ago, that was majority of the states. But because of mass incarceration, as the laws have gotten more liberal, despite that fact, more people are disenfranchised than ever. Right? Because we only have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners, right? we're doing incredible damage to our democracy through our criminal justice policies. And then, of course, it's not visited equally geographically or racially in this country, right? It, it disenfranchises certain segments of the population disproportionately. 2% of Americans nationally, but about 8% of African Americans, right? So that is the biggest, I think, single barrier to universal suffrage um, in this country than anything else. But there are a lot of different things that the ACLU is working on to try to improve uh, uh, participation. Things like election day registration, which about uh, 14 states have, right, states that have it get turnout about five percentage points higher than states that don't, right? But the problem is, is that we can't get this stuff done in legislatures where, you know, voting rules have become a zero, seen as a zero-sum game between the Democrats and the Republicans because, frankly, the Republican Party has seen the diversification of the electorate and has decided they can't win under those circumstances and need to try to tamp that down for as long as possible. And until then, we have to work around them, whether that's through litigation or through direct ballot initiatives, to try to create the inclusive democracy that we all deserve. Thanks, great, okay. <laughs> I think just, I'll leave it to Patrice and then Masha for yeah, final I can take comments. the digital media, um, which is, yes, it is a tool. Um, I think some organizations have really been able to utilize it in ways that have been incredibly supportive and helpful. Think about Color of Change. Um, who has uh, created online digital organizing and digital advocacy primarily focused on black communities. 
um, Color of Change was one of the people that were able to get Bill O'Reilly off air. Um, so uh, digital media is incredibly important. Social media is incredibly important. And it th I don't think it's the tools that um, make human beings do bad things. I just think human do beings do bad things. So like, we can't blame the tools. Uh, we have to have better behavior when we have tools. I'll just follow up on that. Um, I mean, social media are not a thing with inherent characteristics. And what uh, I, thi I think that the, the evolution that we have undergone, the unfortunate evolution, is from thinking that social media and the internet in general were inherently democratic uh, to thinking that they're inherently <coughs> dangerous and evil. And both things are equally wrong. Social media and the internet in general are communication tools, they're amplifiers, and among other things, social media are amplifiers of connections that already exist offline. They do not actually create new connections. They may create n a few new individual connections, but basically they do not create uh, connections between uh, constituencies, they do not con uh, uh, create connections between communities, they do not create commu uh, connections across political divides or across um, across worldviews, right? That happens offline. And then social media can be used to speed up and amplify whatever organizing might be happening offline. So that's, that ha that's not inherently anything. It's just faster and louder. Okay, well, uh, you know, I think that people could ask who we d about who we didn't have on this panel, but I don't think anybody could question why we did have the people that we had on this panel, because it was three such fascinating perspectives. <laughs> and thanks to, thanks to all of you for coming, and please take a look uh, and grab the brochure. There's uh, a huge number of events taking place today and tomorrow, and we hope to see you again.
really good, yeah.
I just don't know um, if you want to set up a special for that interpreter. I'm just unsure. I mean, if you were going to do it, we'd just we do it on the side so it'd be a visible person from all angles. Don't know, bro. Don't know. So much of it makes sense. There's so many moves.
but it's 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 like all a cart. So it's every issue and individually, and you need sixty percent of changes. It's so hard. I mean, especially Florida. 